It's time for the Alien Conspiracy Podcast. We are your hosts, Agent ETA, Agent Ether, and Agent Anderson. Come along as we examine UFO sightings, conspiracies, and all things strange. You can follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. We also have an email address, AlienConPod at ProtonMail.com. We would love to hear from you. And don't forget to check us out on Facebook and Discord. Links in the description. This week's episode, Bitcoin. What is it? How does it work? Why do people hate it? Why do people love it? Is it a conspiracy to bring down the global world's government or magic internet money? I think it's to bring down the world's banks. Well, who knows? Maybe it was created by the banks. I read it's like a a government cold war. That's one of the conspiracies. Yeah. Is that China created it. And then we started buying it in America. And it's created like this cold, cold war between countries. I don't know, but I don't, I don't understand it. So therefore it scares me. (laughs) (laughs) Poke it, poke it with a stick. (laughs) Yeah, I have been kind of worried about that though. Like, what if, what if like like Bitcoin or cryptocurrency was you know created by uh, the centralized world banks? Because you know those motherfuckers are never up to any good as far as like you know for the common man. You're never going to benefit off of what they're doing. You know? It is out there. That idea yeah. is out there. But I think it, it's pretty much the exact opposite of what they would want to achieve. So I I find it very unlikely it was created by them. But let's get into it. We're talking about Bitcoin, a digital currency, magic internet money, BTC, blow stamps, Bitcoin Aroni, Bitcoin Inski, <laughs> the old dirty bits. I haven't heard of half of these. I, I, those, some of those are real. I might have made up one or two of those. I was going to say, they sound made up. Good job. <laughs> My favorite one there is the old dirty bits. I hadn't heard that. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I made that one up. <laughs> <laughs> Very clever. <Yeah. laughs> nice, dude. <laughs> Most people don't know what it actually is or how it works or why it's valuable. That's if anybody, you know, I've been following uh, cryptocurrency for quite some time. And pretty much the first thing anybody will, you know, if it comes up in a conversation, the first thing anybody will ask is, well, why is it worth anything? It's just, you know, it's just magic internet money. It should be worth nothing, right? It's not backed by anything. It's not backed by a central government. You can't trade it in for gold. It should be absolutely worthless, right? So why is it valuable? That's what a lot of people have trouble wrapping their head around. If it can be replicated endlessly, why isn't it, right? But not so fast, because that's not how Bitcoin works. It's a decentralized peer-to-peer digital currency that is deflationary by design. Now, what does that mean? I don't know. Well, I think Agent (laughs) Ether Ether is going to pick up the conversation here. Sure. I, I mean, a lot of people, you're right, they they say, isn't Bitcoin worthless? I mean, I know when I'm having conversations, you know, because that's a topic that comes up a lot when I'm out with my girlfriends, not. But when people do talk about it with me, they, they think it's uh, that it's worthless. But if you think about it, right now, people around the world, everyone from, I mean, really small investors to big businesses, they own about a trillion dollars in Bitcoins. That's how much exists. Well, that was in November before 
the price went down so much. But still, we're talking about an awful lot of money. I was going to say, that's a lot of nuts. Well, I, I read that Bitcoin makes up about 3% of circulating, like the, the total amount of money in the world. Well, let's compare the digital currency of Bitcoin to actual money that you're used to carrying around in your wallet. So how many dollars actually exist? Well, if you're looking at, you know, dollars in circulation, we're talking anywhere from what, 90 trillion to 1.3 quadrillion, but that is an actual paper money. Um, if you look at paper money, you only have 2.1 trillion that's out there. Right. So the vast majority of money is imaginary. It's not yeah. printed. It it doesn't actually right. exist it's, physically. It's on like balance sheets or like debts, like including our national debt that we owe to China. That's not real dollars. Or I think in the form of like unsold stock, you could say that's also imaginary money. Yeah. And we talked about this on a previous episode uh, when ETA did it. ETA and I did an episode about the creation of the Federal Reserve. We touched on a little bit on um, fractional reserve banking. Without going into too much detail, if you deposit $1 into a bank, that turns into approximately $10 that they can lend out. And that's, that's more or less what the United States sets it at. Other countries or other banks international may have different standards. So I don't know what those would be. I'd have to look into it. But basically, that creates money out of thin air. They just, they lend that out to, that $1, they lend that out to like 10 different people. Yeah, in other words, it can be created just by like a wave of the wave of the pen, or I guess in this day and age, a click of the keyboard. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, this is why a lot of people don't like the idea of stimulus checks is because our government creates this budget and then they spend more than they have and they're sending out these stimulus checks and it's like, where is this money coming from? It, it doesn't even exist. And so it's inflating, it's inflating the dollar. Dollars are inflationary. There will always be more tomorrow than there are uh, today. Right, exactly. All right, so then we have to ask what makes Bitcoin different than the dollar. I mean, we can say it has value because people agree that it does. I mean, it's not going away. At this point, Bitcoin has been around for a while, and even though it's really volatile, it goes up and it goes down, I don't think it's going anywhere. I would agree with that. That's that's what people wonder is why does it have value, but what they don't realize is that the dollar is not backed by anything. It's only valuable because people say, we all agree that it's valuable. Right, it's not like it's backed by gold. So if I go to my next door neighbor and I say, I'll give you this many dollars for your car, they're willing to say, okay, I agree this car is worth that many dollars, I'll sell it to you. But it's not backed by gold. It's not backed by anything. And even gold, by extension, gold is only worth something because we say that it is. It, there's no reason why gold, I mean, you might as well pick up a rock off the ground and say, here's this rock. I'll trade it for your car. We, it, it's, uh, like, um, it's like a social construct. Well, but, but here's the thing, though. It's like uh, it's shiny. <laughs> gold or Bitcoin or both? It can be. Yeah, you know, gold or silver. Sometimes it can be shiny. I, I like shiny. I like shiny well, stuff. Well, ironically yeah. enough, you, you know? mine gold and you also <laughs> mine Bitcoin. You do mine Bitcoin. <laughs> that is true. Oh. Uh, Noise. But yeah, so that's the, the reason why, in a nutshell, the reason why Bitcoin is valuable, same reason dollars are valuable or gold or anything else, it's because people enough people agree that it's valuable and they're willing to trade it for other crap, so therefore it's worth something. But 
it, everything that has value, it, everything that has value is basically sort of like a cultural construct. It has value because we say it does. Yeah, but Bitcoin actually mm-hmm. exists. It's sitting somewhere either on an exchange or in a digital wallet, and there's a finite amount. Yeah, and that's where I think a lot of people have trouble wrapping their heads around it because it doesn't have any sort of physical representation. You can't print it. You can't pull it out of your wallet. It's purely digital. And yet, it's more real than dollars because every Bitcoin actually exists. They're not made up out of thin air. So they're more real than dollars. It's kind of crazy to think about, but it's true. Yeah, I think the trouble is that that people have is that they're virtual. They're virtual dollars, but you're holding right. them. But so are dollars. Dollars are almost them, all virtual. Like most of them are virtual too. And you're holding mm-hmm. them in a in a wallet. It's just a digital personal wallet. And and unlike money, even if you're hiding money in like an offshore account or under your bed, people can take that from you. No one can take Bitcoin from you. No one can seize it, freeze it. No government can force you to hand it over short of, you know, torture. And because, you know, nobody can force you to hand it over, I think governments don't like it. And a lot of times, like the media, I think on behest of governments, will point to illicit activities. And they'll say, you know, we can't allow Bitcoin because people use it, you know, uh, in for drug deals, for slave trade, for that sort of thing. Uh, <laughs> I remember... I remember hearing this argument that, you know, the Bitcoin was an evil type of currency because, you know, uh, the drug the drug trade is using it to build submarines to smuggle <laughs> drugs. And I yeah. was like, I was like, all right, all right then. I mean, I, what's your point? Like, they're they're going to use whatever currency right, that they have right. at hand. To they're going to use dollars. They're still going to do it. They're going to yeah. use bitcoins. Well, and yeah, the, there's nothing but negative press that you see in the mainstream media because the banks hate it and governments hate it because. They can't control it. It's but like, do the banks exactly. really hate it? Because yeah, they ev- do. <laughs> but everybody's buying Bitcoin, right? Well, nowadays they still because oh, they don't want to lose out. Yeah, on it's profit. all about money, I guess. Yeah. They'll they'll buy it because you know they want the money. They don't like it, but they have no choice at this point. You know what it really reminds me of is back in the day when MP3s first came out in the record industry. The, the reaction of the record industry was basically like somebody sticking their fingers in their ears and saying, la, 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 I can't hear you. You don't exist kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. But eventually they were forced to deal with the fact that, okay, this is a thing. And that's where we are in Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies is like when they first came out, the institutions, the banks, they stuck their fingers in their ears and they say, la, 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 you don't exist. I'm going to pretend you're not here. And eventually yeah, news, right? they were forced to acknowledge that, okay, this is a real thing. Maybe we need to start getting into this because what the hell, we're going to make money too, you know? It's actually, Bitcoins are sort of like the opposite of dollars. Like Ether was saying, there's a finite amount. They're deflationary by design and you can't make them up out of thin air. You also can't reverse your transactions like you can with banks. Yeah. They're they're permanent. You know, a scammer or a hacker can get on to your Bitcoins if they're like on an exchange. But if you have your personal wallet and uh, it's not sitting out there in some shady exchange uh, where you're kind of SOL. <laughs> it's it's protected. You know, when you use PayPal, six months later, someone can come onto the site and say that they don't like your product, they want to return it, and they will just take that money from your bank account. Like, they always side with the, with the buyer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. Like, if you sold something on eBay or whatever. And, right. And they could, they, I mean, it's not just eBay, it's 
many types of transactions go through like, let's say, PayPal or credit cards. And somebody can complain about that transaction and they're very easy to reverse. You really don't have complete control of your bank account. Like people, you think you own your bank account? The government can garnish your wages. They can garnish your your bank account. The IRS can come in if you owe taxes. They can seize that money. It's not really yours. Yeah. And there's nothing you can do about it if they want to do that, you know? They can seize your money and take it with just like an accusation of wrongdoing without even having been proven in the court of law of breaking the law. They can just, you know, freeze your accounts and take your money just because they have that much power. And it has happened in some cases. It doesn't happen that often, but it does happen. We could do an episode just on the shenanigans that have surrounded PayPal itself. Right. You know what I mean? Like there, there's, there's a, there's some, some sob stories I've heard about people losing substantial amounts because, you know, they they said or did the wrong thing, for example, you know, and yeah, yeah. or they, they left their account, you know, um, for a long time and didn't, didn't mess with it. So, like, basically, they just got cleared out, you know? Yeah. But or yeah, how about that guy? Uh, there's a lot of shenanigans involved. How about that guy who's still searching in the junkyard for his old computer that he threw away that just has a ridiculous that's, amount yep. of money on it? That's that's a sad story. That's one of the story. things I was talking about. He's yeah, actually working with this. Uh, he's working with this group, and they think if you could remember some of your passwords, because there's hold, hold that thought for just a minute. Because I think ETA is going to touch on that oh, later. Well, then I will. I will hold my yeah. thoughts. Yeah, let's, <laughs> let's not get into that just yet. My but. apologies. I did not mean to steal your thunder. I was just thinking about it. <laughs> well, it's. It's a, it's a good story, you know. It's it's a it's a sad story, you know. But yeah. it's it's. I remember uh, when when Agent Anderson first told me that we were doing the, um, this episode. That, that was like one of the first because I was like one of the, the. I remember hearing that story very early on. Yeah, it was a while ago now, but like yeah, I remember hearing it. And I was like, "What? That sucks so yeah. much for that dude." Yeah, <laughs> but, don't you just feel for him? Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll get into that later. Yeah. Okay. Well, then I guess I'll oh, go man, into. Like, uh, yeah. What do you think, the history? There's one more advantage that uh, Bitcoin has that I think is worth mentioning in general. Now, there's a lot of stuff. I'm assuming the audience in general is unfamiliar, so that's why we're taking it at like a very basic level. So there's a lot more to it than what we're just saying. But one of the best things about Bitcoin is that you can transfer money anywhere in the world, and it's very fast and very cheap to do so. The speed and cost of moving $1 is the exact same as moving a million dollars or any amount of money. 10 cents, 10 million, whatever. It costs the same. It takes the same amount of time. It takes 10 minutes to send any amount of money anywhere in the world. And the cost to move it is very low, usually pennies or dimes. It depends on how much network activity there is at the time. The The price fluctuates. The price itself, you can set whatever price you want. If you want to set zero, you can do that as a transaction fee, but it might take a really long time for that transaction to go through. A reasonable transaction fee is generally fifty cents or lower, and if you're gonna if you're gonna send like a million dollars, you know, overseas somewhere, it's gonna cost you a lot more than fifty cents, and it's gonna take a oh, lot yeah. more than ten minutes, right? So, well, especially especially if you're transferring one currency into another. Oh mm-hmm. right, I didn't even Poten- thought about that. Potentially, you could lose all kinds of money. You know, it's yeah. Everybody's going to want a piece of that pie, right? You can't just send $5 million overseas or wherever without somebody taking a cut. I want a cut. But with Bitcoin, your cut <laughs> is going to be the same for $5 million as it will be for $0.05. Cents. There's absolutely no difference. 
It's just whatever the network fees are, the higher your fees that you choose to pay, the more likely it is that one of the miners is going to want to process that transaction. So it's going to be faster than people who are offering lower fees. But even with a very low fee, it'll go through eventually. But if you, uh, most wallets nowadays, well, we're getting ahead of ourselves there, but um, the software will tell you what fee to pay usually. And it's usually very, very low. But uh, yeah, so let's get a little bit into the history of cryptocurrencies or Bitcoin specifically. Okay. Do you have 100% trust in your government and banks? Do you believe they have your best economic interest in mind? Sure they do. (laughs) (laughs) Of course they do. So I would say, you know, why do we need digital currency? And I would say, why, why don't we? The government doesn't like it. It can't control it. You know, it has trouble even getting people to pay their taxes on, you know, Bitcoin transactions. So I feel very uh, strongly that, that we should use Bitcoin. I like it. Well, I would just like to say that, um, first of all, the government can track Bitcoin. I'm, we'll get into that in a little bit. But also, don't dodge your taxes. Don't dodge the taxes. It's a bad idea. You know what? Like, people hate paying taxes. I get it. But on the other hand... You know, all those people who are willing to risk their lives to put your house, when your house is on fire, they're going to put it out. They'll run into a burning building to pull you out of it. That's taxes. The reason why we have roads that you can actually drive on, taxes. Schools. Schools, taxes. Yeah, I'm not saying people shouldn't pay their taxes. I'm saying they're not. I like paying my taxes. (laughs) This may sound weird to people. I like paying my taxes because you get something for it. You know, you really do. But anyways. So the idea of Bitcoin or digital currency in general, has actually been around a while, specifically something that's going to be encrypted and and digital. Uh, so an example of this is the formulation of Bitgold, which was proposed back in 1998. It was never implemented. There was this uh, mathematician, he published a paper, and his name was Nicholas... <laughs> Nick, <Damn it>. Nick <laughs> Sabo. Sabo. <laughs> I cannot pronounce his name. Nick, say I haven't like phonetically written here, and I'm still struggling. Anyways, he described uh, in this paper using a computer to solve a puzzle, and when you solve the puzzle, that's called proof of work. And the cool thing about it is it doesn't require a third party. That's the key right there. That's that's the real linchpin. The the really revolutionary idea is that you don't need a third party. With most transactions that are digital, let's say a credit card or transferring from here to there or whatever, it always requires a trusted third party to facilitate that. But we're talking about something that's peer-to-peer, decentralized, without any centralized party mediating the network. It's, it's really crazy. Really crazy that they were able to achieve this. Right, but, but yeah. there is a problem. What's the problem? The double spend. Oh, no. (laughs) Not the double spend. What's the double spend? Well, it's kind of like counterfeiting. Yeah, that's true. But, you know, a double spend is... So, Bitgold was a paper. It was a theoretical framework that was, you know, that was basically published by Nick Sabo. Sabo. And it had had the, the foundation, the framework for a digital, a decentralized digital currency. There were other digital currencies before Bitgold and Bitcoin that used a centralized agency to verify transactions. We won't go into those. But um, one of the main problems with Bitgold is it didn't 
prevent the double spend. The double spend is when you come up with some way of either doing two transactions simultaneously or you're somehow able to spend the same coin twice. You're basically able to fool the network and you uh, basically counterfeit one way or another. You counterfeit the digital uh, the digital currency because, you know, it's like anything digital. It can just be copy and pasted. One of the parts that Agent Ether really skipped, which I think is important here. You, you, you don't want to... <laughs> 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 you, you, don't, you don't want to read this? You just want to flip me off? That's all I have. <laughs> okay. Well, anyways, um, I'll go ahead and read it then. One question that uh, some people may wonder is, well, if there's all these software problems and, you know, double spins, why would anybody want a digital currency in the first place? What's the point? I already have money. I already have money in the bank. I can spend it even without physical cash. I can just use my bank card or whatever. No problem. Easy peasy, right? No big deal. But why would you want to create this digital currency? Well, we know why Nick Sable wanted to, because he told us on his blog. A long time ago, I hit upon the idea of bit gold. The problem in a nutshell is that our money currently depends on trust in a third party for its value. As many inflationary and hyperinflationary episodes during the 20th century demonstrated, this is not an ideal state of affairs. Similarly, private banknote issue, while it had various advantages as well as disadvantages, similarly depended on a trusted third party. Precious metals and collectibles have an uh, unforgeable scarcity due to the costliness of their creation. This once provided uh, money in the value of which it was largely independent of any trusted third party. Precious metals have problems, however. It's too costly to assay metals repeatedly for common transactions. Thus, a trusted third party, usually associated with the tax collector who accepted the coins as payment, was invoked to stamp a standard amount of the metal into a coin. Transporting large values of metal can be a rather insecure affair, as the British found when transporting gold across a U-boat-infested Atlantic to Canada during World War I to support their gold standard. What's worse, you can't pay online with metal. Thus, it would be very nice if there were, were a protocol whereby unforgeably costly bits could be created online with minimal dependence on trusted third parties and then securely stored, transferred, and assayed with similar minimal trust, BitGold. In summary, all money mankind has ever used has been insecure in one way or another. This insecurity has been manifested in a wide variety of ways, from counterfeiting to theft, but the most pernicious of which has probably been inflation. BitGold may provide us with a money of unprecedented security from these dangers. That's just sort of why he wanted to create a digital currency. Because you might think to yourself, like I said, what's wrong with the currency we have? Why do we need a digital currency? And right there, he kind of lays out his thoughts. And that's a very brief summary. If if you want, you can look up. He, he has a blog, and you can look up a lot about this guy and his writings and what he thinks. But that's just a very, very, very short version of, you know, what he thinks. So I don't know if, if Ether mentioned the date, but BitGold's paper was published in 1998. 
Did you say that? I did. I don't think you said that. I did say that. I just didn't read the very long-winded statement that <laughs> All you right. did. Well, I have I have it recorded, so... <laughs> you can double check. Yes. I'm going to go back and double check. <laughs> <laughs> digital currencies are basically data. Data can be copied and pasted. Therefore, it's possible for a digital token to be spent twice or counterfeited. The traditional solution to this problem is a central authority that verifies transactions and rejects anything like a double spend. But this is obviously unacceptable for a decentralized currency, and that was the whole goal with BitGold and later Bitcoin. This itself with the central authority isn't foolproof at all. Currency regulated by the central authority is counterfeited all the time. A digital currency regulated by a central power will be inflationary. It's a law of nature. There's no way around it. If you could just print more money anytime you want, then you will do so. And that's what happens. And that's where Bitcoin comes in. It solved the double spin problem, the inflation problem, and some other stuff. It's more or less impossible to counterfeit Bitcoin or create it out of thin air, wave a magic wand, and create massive inflation. So magic internet money may not be looking so bad now compared to regular money, right? So it's... I don't know if that makes sense, but I mean, that's kind of why like Bitcoin has, I guess, more intrinsic value than like a dollar, which has, you know, the backing and faith of the government, but they can just make as much as they want where Bitcoin is limited to a finite amount. So yeah, there's, a, there's a set, there's a set amount, right? It's not like yeah. something like 18 million or something like that or 21 million total, but I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. But so let's, why is inflation bad? So despite every economist with a fancy degree, they'll say that inflation is good, but it depends on who you are. If you're a business, you want people to spend money. If you have inflation, then the value of money goes down over time. So people are encouraged to spend it, not save it. That's great if you have, if you're like Walmart, you don't want people, you know, sitting on their money. You want them spending it at your store. If money's deflationary, then people are encouraged to save it, not spend it. That's very bad if you're Walmart or a business. Hey, nothing against Walmart, you know. I love going there in my sweats. It's a good time. But anyways, economists will tell you that deflation is the bugbear of economics, the monster hiding under your bed. But as an individual or household trying to save money, inflation is a very bad thing. Your saved money drops in value over time, and your only option is to put it into some sort of risky investment like the stock market. It sounds good because the stock market always goes up no matter no matter what, right? But in reality, I mean, maybe in the long, long, long term, but in reality, what if it happens to drop by half? What if the market crashes when you want to retire? Well, guess what? You're going to have to work a few more years. It doesn't matter. You know, if, if you want to retire now, you're, out. yeah, you're, you're at the whims of the timing of the stock market. You have no control over that. If you're lucky... The timing works out, but for many people, it doesn't. What if you could put your money into something that was designed to go up in value over time? Something that would be safer than gold, that, you know, would be very hard to steal. Something totally liquid that you could cash in anytime you wanted. Well, that's kind of the ideas why why it was designed to be deflationary rather than inflationary. And that's why, you know, inflation is so bad for the average person is because no matter how much money you put in, the bank, it's going to go down over time. And I don't care what percentage you're earning on your bank account. It's not keeping up with inflation. So what is Bitcoin and how does it work? And when was it invented and who invented it? So on October 31st, 2008, 
Satoshi Nakamoto published a paper titled Bitcoin, a Peer-to-Peer Electronic Cash System. It described Bitcoin as a system for electronic transaction without relying on trust. On the 3rd of January, 2009, Satoshi mined the Genesis block, block number zero, bum, bum, bum. and created the first 50 Bitcoins. Before he vanished, he mined an estimated 1 million Bitcoins, give or take. We're not entirely sure. Wow. But it's somewhere in the somewhere in the ballpark of 1 million Bitcoins. And earlier today, I checked the value is somewhere in the ballpark of $40,000 each. So you go ahead and do the math on that one. It's pretty easy to calculate. It's a fuck ton of money. Yes, a lot. <laughs> that he's got just sitting there. You can you can find his uh, his public addresses and you can see to this day how much coins are still sitting there. They haven't moved, to my knowledge. They're still there. But anyways, uh, the first time somebody bought something with Bitcoin was on May 22nd, 2010, when somebody bought two pizzas for, anybody guess how many Bitcoins? Uh, wait, wait, wait. I don't know the story, but let me guess. Four? I'm going to guess a hundred. 10,000 Bitcoins. <laughs> Holy shit. That's one expensive pizza. At, holy. At this, oh. at this time, at this time, it was still very experimental and they weren't really worth anything. And if you could have literally any computer, the worst computer on the planet you could use to mine Bitcoins and you could make some. Nowadays, there's so much computing power on the network that you have to have really powerful computing in order to make money on it. But back then, you just your average Joe Blow, you know, laptop, you could make some Bitcoins on it. They were virtually worthless at the time. So uh, on the forums, somebody said, hey, I'll pay somebody 10,000 Bitcoins to order me a pizza or two pizzas. And they did. That was the first Hmm. transaction. So nowadays, those Bitcoins are worth about $400 million. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> some expensive that pizza. Shit cray. Oh, yeah. <laughs> man. But, but for $400 million, this individual went down as the first person ever to spend Bitcoins for something. Yeah, but what was his name? I don't know. See, I don't know either. <laughs> I don't I'd have either. to look it up, you know? <laughs> man, $400 million. Don't you just wish? That's like more than the lottery. But Holy crap, yeah. yeah. There is sort of an unofficial holiday on May 22nd to commemorate the first transaction. It's like a pizza day, Bitcoin pizza day or something. So. <laughs> I like now it. Now I feel... Now I feel embarrassed. I was like, uh, four? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's understandable. I was like, I was... I was going off of like, you know, what they're worth, were worth, you know, are worth today, I guess you'd say, you know, like, like somewhere yeah. like four would be absolutely astronomical, ridiculous yeah. as far as how much it's worth today, you know? Yeah. Well, back then they weren't really traded on 10, exchanges. 10,000. Back then it was almost like a barter. There was no really established value. So it was, I mean, everybody mm-hmm. had tens of thousands of them. So it was just like, ah, uh, you want yeah. me to spend 40 bucks on pizza? Like you're going to have to give me something for it, I guess. So 10,000 yeah. seemed reasonable, you know? Well, so, and also, especially earlier, not not that it, it isn't still a little bit, but like especially very early on in the history of Bitcoin, from what I understand, is extremely volatile. Like there were big swings as far as the worth, right? Always was, always, always has been, still uh, yeah, is, yeah, still is. It was just yeah recently hit a high of like sixty or seventy, and now it's back. It well went down to like the low thirties, and now it's at like forty. I don't follow it on a daily basis, so I don't know exactly, but I mean, it swings all. Over the place. Yes. Mm-hmm. On August 10th, 2010, a vulnerability was found and a transaction of half a Bitcoin was used to send 92 billion Bitcoins. However, this was obviously spotted by the people running the network. The bug allowing it was fixed and miners forked the blockchain, canceling the transaction. 
This is the only exploit to have ever happened on the network, and it was quickly fixed. If another vulnerability was found, it wouldn't really matter all that much because the problem would be fixed, and the hacker would end up with nothing because the people running the network, which is anybody who wants to participate can, they would just roll it back until, you know, just before the problem happened, and everything would be fine. Probably there'd be a momentary price dip or whatever, but in the long run or even in the short run, it'd be, it'd be okay. It wouldn't matter that much. But uh, this, this is an example, a good example of why trying to hack the network ex- itself really isn't all that, um, there's not really much point to it. That's why the, the crooks, instead of trying to compromise the network, they go after individuals and they try to scam people or they try to have, you know, like a software attack or like a virus or something instead attacking individuals because you're not going to really benefit from attacking the network itself. On February 24th, 2014, the largest crypto exchange in the world, Mt. Gox, went down, crashing the price of Bitcoin. Many thought that the party was over and, you know, crypto was dead and that was pretty much the end. Uh, This is, I actually want to do an episode on Mt. Gox because it's there's really quite a lot to it and it's kind of there's too much there to really go over in as part of a different episode it really needs its own episode late 2016 and 2017 institutional investors or you know wall street started getting into bitcoin so it took them that long to sort of wake up to the idea that they could make money on this and they started jumping in before this happened If you had like $50,000 or $100,000, you were considered like a whale, right? Like one of the big boys, one of the, you know, one of the big giant people in the, like one of the big investors, you were rich. But after 2016, late 2016 and 2017, when the institutional investors get in, now all of a sudden, 50,000 or 100,000, that is now peanuts. Now we're talking about millions and billions of dollars pouring into the crypto markets and Bitcoin went from, you know, maybe $1,000, shot all the way up to $20,000, and then crashed all the way back down to $3,000, and has gone up since to where we are today, in a nutshell. But this is pretty significant, because this is sort of like the growth of it. It was inevitable that sooner or later, Wall Street or big investors would get involved. So you could say at this point, Bitcoin had graduated from kindergarten or joined the big leagues or whatever you want to say. But that was sort of like the end of the beginning. And now we're sort of in the next phase, which is, you know, going from something that's a novelty or magic internet money or something that people sort of have heard about. And now it's it's reaching the point where it's becoming like a household name. And people who thought it was, uh, you know, magic internet money before are now starting to buy some. It's becoming a, you know a very common thing for people to want to get some or for people hearing about it. It's showing up in the news all the time and that kind of thing. And it's it's getting a lot easier to get Bitcoin. You can, you know, buy it uh, off PayPal. And I think you can buy it off Coinstar, like if you're uh, in the supermarket. Yeah, if hmm. if you want to get ripped off. I'm not saying it's not a ripoff. I'm just saying it's so much easier to get Bitcoin now than it yeah. used to be. It's easier, well, but you, you can actually be- spend it on stuff too. Mm-hmm. Like before, like there was very little you can actually spend Bitcoin on, right? But like, yeah, they had to trade it. Like, like, like what Angie Anderson was talking about earlier. Like it was kind of a bartering system very earlier on. But now you could actually put a damn down payment on a house, right? Uh, I guess to sum up that um, 
that Wall Street stuff. I mean, we could do a whole episode on the Wall Street stuff. For example, when they started doing Bitcoin futures, which I don't want to get into what futures are because it's a whole other thing, but you're basically gambling on what the price is going to be in the future. When that started happening, the the Bitcoin price of, so you, you'll buy a contract of a future. You, know, you say, okay, I, I'm paying this amount of money. I'm gambling that the price of Bitcoin is going to reach this price by this date. Every single time that date came, Bitcoin always fell short of that price. It would run up to that price, and then just before then, the price would drop. So there's a ton of stuff like that that definitely looks like it was being the price is being manipulated by Wall it's, Street. It's Damn super, Wall Street. Super sus. Yes, yeah, super sus. But um, we won't go into that. It's like a whole episode by itself, so we won't go into that here. But I mean, so that's like I'm just doing a very, very brief version of like the history, just to kind of you know ground everybody and just to go through a couple of the major events, but there's a ton of stuff that I'm skipping over. That's just sort of like a very brief history because, uh, you know, we don't have, you know, a four hour episode for us here. We're well, just, you could you know. have a whole podcast <laughs> just on Bitcoin. Oh yeah, there are, there are yeah. entire podcasts just on Bitcoin. Yeah, for sure. But anyways, let's get into just a little bit about how Bitcoin works. Now you can get really technical as far as like how it actually works, but I'm going to go on, like, I'm going to keep it really basic. Bitcoin exists on a public ledger Every transaction is recorded on that ledger. The transactions are verified by the decentralized network. Anybody with computing power can participate in the network and help maintain the ledger and verify transactions. Every Bitcoin created and every transaction ever transacted are recorded on the public ledger. Contrary to what most people believe, it isn't anonymous. The transactions themselves don't have any identifying information, but it is possible to find somebody by linking them to a particular transaction. The government has developed software to track and identify people based on how their usage of the Bitcoin network to find people who are doing things like, you know, buying drugs or laundering money and stuff like that. Or building submarines. Yeah, building submarines, yeah. But this is why, <laughs> contrary to popular belief, Bitcoin is really is not that great for crime. It's not anonymous at all. And cold hard cash... I think is way better for crime because it's impossible to track its history, where it came mm-hmm. from or where, or where it went. By comparison, you know, those hookers and Coke that you bought with Bitcoin back in 2017, that stuff, the record of that transaction never goes away. It will always be available on the public ledger. It's, it's there permanently. They might, they might be able to use a drug dog to figure out maybe if that, that bill has been used to snort some Coke or something, but that's about yeah. it. Yeah, but I mean, that's not proof. You could have just gotten that at the grocery store or the bank or something, you know? So if if I want to go check out this public ledger, where am I going to go? Um, you can, there's a lot of places where you can find various versions of the public ledger. If you want to find like the raw source code kind of a deal where you look at, you know, the, the nitty gritty details, you can find that. If you want to find um, like a, a web version, like a front end that will interpret the data and put it in a way that's easy to read and digest. You can find that too. There are many, many places. Just Google it. Just put, you know, Google Bitcoin public ledger. It's, it's very available. It's easy to find. Anyways, uh, sooner or later, a person can be connected to a transaction. And the way they will do that most commonly, or the easiest way would be if you transfer your Bitcoin to exchange it for dollars somewhere, you're going to have to do that on an exchange. And when you do that, the exchange is going to want your identity. It wasn't always like this. There used to be exchanges where you could be anonymous and transact stuff. But nowadays, 
they're pretty much always going to ask, ask for like your driver's license and stuff like that. And so it's a lot harder to get away with nowadays, but uh, sooner or later, your identity will be tied to your Bitcoin transactions. And then the government will find out about that. So, I mean, for crime, Bitcoin, I don't think is really the way to go, at least not as far as I can tell. Maybe there's something I don't know, but even um, stuff like Bitcoin mixers, which we won't get into, even those can be decoded by the government. Nothing is foolproof. You are not safe using Bitcoin for crime. You will be caught if they want to catch you. But anyways, how is Bitcoin stored, right? That's the next question most people usually have is, where do you keep it? It exists where? In the ether? It exists, you know, in space? I don't have any Bitcoins, no. Well, you store your Bitcoin on it. Usually people will buy it on some kind of exchange, Sort of like if you go to like a stock exchange, you can like TD Ameritrade or I don't know, um, Scott Trade. I think that one went out of business, whatever. But you, you buy your stocks on an exchange and they the broker will hold those stocks for you. You can ask for a certificate. You can have them mail you the stock or whatever, but most people don't do that. Most people will have their shares stored for them by the exchange. Now, Bitcoin, you can also store on the exchange, but I wouldn't recommend doing that. You can also store it on a personal wallet. Uh, The way the wallet works is that it's basically software that holds your coins on a public address. The address is a long string of numbers and letters up to 35 characters long that is a unique identifier. It also has a private key. So there's two parts of the address, or there's two parts of your Bitcoin storage. There's the public facing part and the private facing part, the public, the public key and the private key, right? The private key is sort of like a password, which prevents anyone from accessing the Bitcoin stored on the public address. The public facing one is kind of like a digital location. And that's where you send them to. That's where they're stored. That's where they're assigned. You have, you know, a string of a random string of characters and the network says, okay, this random string of character has characters has this number of Bitcoins on it. Think of it sort of like, um, like a unique gamer tag or email address, but its only purpose is to assign Bitcoins rather than communication or playing games, right? You need a password to log into the email or gaming account. That's the private key, the public key or, or the public facing key would be the email address or the gamer tag, which anybody can find if they want to, right? I truly, truly appreciate a good gamer tag. <laughs> <laughs> Matter of fact, Agent, Agent Anderson has a, a pretty damn decent one himself. <laughs> I, I got a couple of good ones, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but all right, so. <laughs> I was waiting for you to say it, but then you didn't. No, no, I'm not. I, I can yeah, understand. Really. Hey, we don't want that out there. I, I want. I want. I just want to play my games in peace, man. I, I gotta say, they're so good. I'm embarrassed that the children use them. <laughs> yeah, so, I didn't tell them. To, sometimes the kids will use my account to play games, and I'm like, ooh, maybe I shouldn't have used that name. Well, the worst thing is when I have to tell other moms what the username is, so that their kids can play with my kids. Yes, yeah, and I have to like apologize to be like, I'm really. Sorry, this is the game name. I apologize. I I tell them not to use my account, but what are you going to do, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, so anyways, in a nutshell, you have a random string of numbers that you have the ownership of, just like an email account. And then if somebody sends you Bitcoins to that address, 
We call that an address, the random strings, right? So if somebody sends Bitcoins to that address, the network identifies that address as having this number of Bitcoins assigned to it. And just like an email address, you can't access those without the password. It's That's pretty much it, right? It's pretty simple. Just like how email works or anything else, really. So how, how do you send Bitcoins from point A to point B? Well, every 10 minutes, transactions are calculated by the network. This is called a block. The block includes each and every transaction during the 10 minutes. Everywhere, across the entire globe. The computing power needed by the network to complete the transactions is rewarded every block with newly minted Bitcoins. The number of Bitcoins began at 50 per block, but every four years or so, it's cut in half. This is called block halving, and this is why Bitcoin is deflationary by design. The next halving work will occur sometime around May 5th, 2024. The current reward is 6.25 Bitcoins and will be decreased to 3.125 Bitcoins in the next block halving in 2024. So that means that right now, every 10 minutes, 6.25 Bitcoins are created. That's with every block. So every 10 minutes, six more Bitcoins. And that reward that's a reward that's given to the people who provide the computing power. There will eventually be a total of 21 million total Bitcoins produced. Block rewards will be reduced to zero sometime in 2140, but the actual rewards will become essentially zero well before that because it gets cut in half, cut in half, cut in half. By 2140, it'll be zero, but well before then, the rewards will be essentially zero. So this is something I I actually have struggled with myself. Why when every country, let's say, I think recently it was Russia, so they didn't want people Bitcoin mining anymore, the price of Bitcoin then drops since it's deflationary by nature and eventually there's not going to be mining because it's not going to be worth anything. Why does it matter if some countries start cracking down on Bitcoin mining? Well, that's that's the thing. So there's two parts of it, right? So there's the block reward, but there's also the transaction fees. The Bitcoin miners get both. So the idea is that as it becomes, you know, it's deflationary by design, as it becomes more valuable, the reward, the, the block reward will no longer be necessary. The reward of the transaction fees will be enough for people to want to provide computing power to the network. So they'll continue. Yeah. So oh. remember I was talking earlier about how it costs something to send Bitcoin. It's like a few cents or whatever, right? Eventually, the idea is that it will become more widely adopted. It'll be like sort of like a universal currency, maybe a world reserve currency, And at that point, if everybody in the world is using it, a few cents here and there every 10 minutes will really add up to a lot. It'll add up to enough to where people will still provide computing power to the network. There will still be a reward. That won't go away. It's just the number of Bitcoins created every 10 minutes will decline over time. You just blew my mind. (laughs) (laughs) Blew your tiny little mind. (laughs) But yeah. My fragile little mind. Yeah, this is what I mean when I say like, it seems more complicated than it is when you really begin to understand how simple it is. Like I'm not talking about the math and the computer code behind it. I'm just talking about the concepts that the number of Bitcoins created every 10 minutes is cut in half every four years. That's it. It's like, it's not that complicated that like it's simpler than it seems at at a first glance. Like the first time I saw it too, I'm like, 
I don't understand. It can't really be that simple. But yeah, it really is that simple. You so know? the more people that buy Bitcoin, the more valuable a Bitcoin becomes. Right. And that's the key idea is that if it becomes more widely used over time, that's the requirement it needs in order to be deflationary. If it becomes less used over time, then it will no longer be deflationary, obviously. But um, if, if it continues on its current trajectory, it will definitely be used more tomorrow than it is today. By tomorrow, I mean, you know, it's the future in general, since Agent Ether tends to be very, very specific. <laughs> but um, yeah, so that's the basic idea, right? If, you know, 10 years from now, it's used as a universal storage of value, then it will be it will be deflated by quite a lot from what it is today. In other words, it'll be in a higher demand and it'll be more valuable per Bitcoin. And you can, if you look at the the price history, that has happened. You know the way it was de- it was designed by a very smart person. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but, or team of people. They basically predicted what would happen if they unleashed this upon the world, and it's happened so far. Will it continue to happen? Nobody knows. There are many many digital currencies now. So there's a lot of competition to Bitcoin. So maybe someday Bitcoin will be replaced by something else. There's, we won't even get into all the, you know, the other digital currencies that are out there, some of which are superior to Bitcoin in many ways, like smart contracts and things like that. But that's, that's a whole other episode. So we won't get into that right now. But anyways, so there's a fun fact. A lot of people I've talked to, they get confused because they're like, okay, well, if Bitcoin is worth 40000 I don't have 40000 to spend on a Bitcoin, so I can't buy any. But, fun fact, the smallest unit of Bitcoin is actually called a Satoshi, named after its creator, Satoshi Nakamoto. This is one one hundred millionth of a Bitcoin. If Bitcoin was worth $1 million each, then one Satoshi would be worth one penny. So they are highly divisible. You can buy one penny or even a fraction of a penny right now, because they're not worth a million dollars each. You can buy a fraction of a penny of a Bitcoin if you want to. So you don't need $40,000 or whatever to buy Bitcoin. You can do it with literally any amount of money. We know what I tell some of my girlfriends. What's that? I say, you know, if you're going to buy that lotto ticket, maybe you should try buying a fraction of a Bitcoin instead because probably going to get more uh, return on the Bitcoin than you will on the lotto ticket. Well, nothing is guaranteed. No, but it's more fun. You at least get some return. Yeah. Well, that's true. Actually, the if you buy a lotto ticket, chances are it's going to become zero. Whereas with Bitcoin or any investment, the chances of it becoming zero not that big. It happens, but it's pretty rare for any investment to become worth zero. But all right, so that so that's I mean, we could do many episodes just on the basics of Bitcoin Bitcoin, but there's usually a lot of confusion about what it is, how it works, why it's valuable, that kind of stuff. So I wanted to kind of go over that stuff a little bit. So now let's talk about some controversies. The first of which, probably the biggest controversy in the realm of cryptocurrency is who is Satoshi Nakamoto, the creator of Bitcoin? Turns out nobody knows. The name is a pseudonym. Nobody knows who created Bitcoin, which was the revolutionary, well, at least I think, is going to completely revolutionize currency. It's like going from the barter system to the fiat system. Like it's the next step and nobody knows who created this thing. Some people think that it's actually, Satoshi is actually a team of people. There's some evidence for this. For example, if you look at the code, now this is obviously, I'm not, I don't know anything about code, so I'm taking somebody else's word for this, but 
the code for Bitcoin w- that was developed by Satoshi would be very difficult for one person to do by themselves, according to what I read, anyways. But uh, I mean that that and it, like think of it as like writing an entire set of encyclopedias, I guess. It'd be hard for one person to do. Usually that's, well, always that's done by multiple people, each writing their own article for whatever entry, right? I don't know if that's a good example, but it's what came to mind. But we have other clues as to who actually wrote the code. In the code, if you've ever seen computer code, there will be, you know, different language used, different comments or whatever. In the code, certain words use a British spelling. For example, the word color is spelled C-O-L-O-U-R. That's kind of an interesting clue. It's like the difference between like how we pronounce um, aluminum or how they pronounce aluminium. Yeah. By the way, that's <laughs> incorrect, guys. It's not aluminium. It's not spelled that way. Just look at how it's spelled. That's just totally wrong. Stop saying it. Come on. Gosh. <laughs> but so anyways, Satoshi Nakamoto posted for the last time on December 12th, 2010, and then disappeared into the ether. He didn't say why he went away. He just left. His last post was part of a discussion about technical stuff. He had no clue whatsoever that that was going to be his last post. Some people speculate that he left because WikiLeaks began taking payments in Bitcoin after they got frozen out of bank accounts. Bitcoin was still in the very early stages at this point, and Satoshi didn't want to be associated with anything as controversial as WikiLeaks. The day before his last post, he posted on the, I'm talking about, I didn't say, I don't think, but we're talking about the BitcoinTalk.org forums, which has always been one of the major central hubs of, you know, cryptocurrency discussions. So on this forums, you could still find this to this day, by the way, you can go look up his account and look up every post that he ever did on these forums. He said, it would have been nice to get this attention in any other context. WikiLeaks has kicked the hornet's nest and the swarm is headed towards us. So he did not want to be involved with this nonsense at all. He was trying to to have anything to do with attention. Yeah, he was trying to build like a legitimate digital currency. He wanted nothing to do with the Silk Road or WikiLeaks or any of this stuff. He was just, you know, Mm -hmm. it was, you know, completely against what he was trying to accomplish. So there have been many people uh, claiming to be Satoshi over the years. The vast majority of these are easily disproven. If it was a single individual, the best candidate, in my opinion, would be Nick Sabo. Which, for those of you unfamiliar, if you want to Google this stuff or whatever, it's spelled S-Z-A-B-O, which is why Agent Ether was having trouble pronouncing it earlier. (laughs) You know, in some countries, they don't say zebra, they say zebra. Yeah, and those countries are weird, and we don't don't like them. (laughs) What do they say, zebra? Zebra. Zebra. That's a nice zebra over there, you know, whatever. Okay, so (laughs) there, there are... So many similarities between BitGold and Bitcoin. Uh, Nick had the knowledge, experience, and background to create something like Bitcoin. Um, however, he's always denied it was him. But of course, you know, the real creator would de- would deny it. So it's one of those things, you know, one of those classic, you know, conspiracy things where it's like, aha, you're denying it was you, so it must be you. You know, like <laughs> that's one of the that's one of the go-to conspiracy explanations. Like, hey, they said it wasn't them, so it must be them, because only the real person would deny it. But uh, 
Anyways, in 2008, Sabo wrote a comment on his blog saying that he wanted to create a live version of BitGold. And this was, you know, just before Bitcoin came out, or, you know, maybe not just before, but, you know, relatively speaking. Satoshi claimed to be a 37-year-old man living in Japan. However, this is doubted because if you look at his writings and, you know, his posts on the forums and stuff like that, he's very fluent in English, and most foreign speakers don't have that good of a grasp on the language. They make grammatical errors and stuff like that. I mean, if you've ever been on forums where people are, you know, posting in their non-native language, it's usually pretty obvious that it's not their native language. I guess you could say that he's a native English speaker living in Japan. You could interpret it that way. I don't know. But timestamps of his posts on BitcoinTalk.org show that he almost never posted between 2 p.m. and 8 p.m. in Japan time. That would be sort of unusual for him to be asleep at those times or to not be active. It's not impossible. It doesn't really prove anything, but it's just sort of an interesting little piece of information. So another candidate for uh, for Satoshi Nakamoto is Hal Finney. He was a cryptographic pioneer. There's not really a whole lot to support that he was the guy, but um, he was involved with cryptocurrencies and stuff from pretty much the get-go. So it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility for him to be the guy. Another person suspected of being Satoshi is Dorian Satoshi Nakamoto, who lived a few blocks away from Hal Finney. His birth name is Satoshi Nakamoto. He was a physicist, and he he had experience as a computer engineer working on classified projects for technology and financial information service companies. And he also became a libertarian in the 90s. So we don't talk about politics a lot on this show, but let's face it, Bitcoin is like kind of like a libertarian kind of a thing, you know? (laughs) Does Mm -hmm. he deny it too, though? Yeah, of course. He says it's not him. But at at some point, this this actually, this guy is kind of interesting because at some point, a journalist caught up with him and decided that he was the guy and interviewed him. And in the interview, he said, I am no longer involved in that and I cannot discuss it. It's been turned over to other people. They are in charge of it now. I no longer have any connection. He later would retract this statement saying he misunderstood the question, right? But if he if he didn't misunderstand the question, you're like, well, that's exactly what you would say, right? Uh, it's it's Sounds a very like it, yeah. Yeah, it's a very strange statement. So when the article about this guy was published about Dorian Satoshi Nakamoto, When the journalist published the article about him saying that he was the Satoshi Nakamoto, um, there was a media frenzy and reporters were like camping outside of his house. They were following him around in his car and basically harassing the crap out of him as journalists do, which was, what was that movie? There was a, there was a line in a movie, which I find absolutely hilarious, but also like, like the line was like, I know you're a journalist, but you used to be a real person or something like that. (laughs) You used to have a soul. (laughs) Yeah, you used to have a soul. It's like, who, what kind of person would harass somebody like this? You know, like not, not somebody who's a person, somebody who's like, you know, but anyways, um, when the article was published about him, uh, and it led to this media frenzy, the, the, the day that article was published, Satoshi Nakamoto, the guy who invented Bitcoin, his peer to peer foundation account posted its first message in five years saying, I am not Dorian Nakamoto. 
uh, which is, this is really kind of suspicious, right? But it was later claimed by the foundation that the account had been hacked. Now this opens up all kinds of questions, right? Like if he was being harassed, then he would go on to that account and say, Hey, this isn't me. But on the other hand, only a moron would do it because doing that would prove that that was you. Right? Yeah. It's like from The Princess oh, Bride. Yeah, exactly. It's like that oh. scene from The Princess Bride. <laughs> Inconceivable. Yeah, what does it mean? And, and furthermore, it, it's hard for me to believe that a, crypto, a cryptography expert would have their account hacked. Their password is not going to be 12345. You're not, you're not going to hack yeah. their password, right? So it sounds like, sounds like he's being a slippery little snake. Yeah. So this whole thing, <laughs> like just that one statement from this account that hadn't been active for five years, opens up like a whole can of worms that it's just like, what does it mean? There's it, it couldn't have been hacked. Maybe it was hacked. Maybe it was him, but it would be stupid if it was him. So maybe it wasn't him. Maybe it really was hacked. It's just, you can go around and around all day discussing it. Like it's just, it's crazy, but it, it's really fun also. But <laughs> So there's a lot of other candidates that could have been Satoshi Nakamoto and we could do, you know, multiple episodes just on those guys, but let's, let's leave that con controversy where it is for now. And, um, I guess, well, I, I want to let uh, somebody else talk for a little bit. So let's let ETA do his part. And then after he's done yeah, with sure. his, when you're done with your bit, we'll get into something a little more nefarious. Yeah, well, because what I'm talking about isn't going to be so technically detailed, I can tell you that much. <laughs> so one of the, one of the things that kind of really interested interests me about like cryptocurrency and like like Bitcoin and stuff in particular is like how some people have misplaced their you know their passwords or what have you, and also there's supposed to be. I remember uh, I'm reading an article that said like around like 2019 there was something like 20 percent of Bitcoin that was actually like like misplaced, and like like because of people that had like like a stranded wallet or uh, they had forgot their 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 you know their uh, their their passwords or whatever you know. It, it depends and, um, on how they calculate I find that. that. Very. Some some places will okay, calculate yeah. well, that. I've seen a couple. Yeah. Yeah. So sometimes what they'll do is they'll look at Bitcoin addresses. Cause like I said earlier, you can look at all of the Bitcoin in existence and you can look at the public addresses where those Bitcoins are owned and any and address inactive. Yeah. Any address that's been inactive for like even as little as one year, some people will consider as lost, which is pretty ridiculous, but usually it's like two or three years. Yeah. What, what a lot of that probably is, is just people saving Really, right. And just yeah. not spending. So right. it's not necessarily lost. So, it's, it's a ballpark, but, um, I, I doubt it's as high but, as 20%, but it could be. It's still, yeah. Well, it's, I it, think yeah. it's still significant dollar wise. Yeah. It's a decent, it must be a decent amount, you know, like if it were about like, like 20% or something, that'd be, you know, I mean, over a hundred billion dollars easily, it probably would be close to closer probably nowadays to 200, you know, but yeah, uh, at least in the middle of it there somewhere, you know, but I have heard a couple stories of, uh, and, and we had alluded to it earlier as well, um, of people that basically accidentally threw away their bitcoins, and holy mother of God! Like, I, I, if I had done some of these things, and like, some of them were honest mistakes. You know what I mean? Like, they they just didn't know what they were like. They didn't realize what they were doing. You know, and like. Like they weren't trying to get rid of it. They they just happened to have mistaken it for something else or, or, you know, somebody else like, you know, like threw away their password or something like that. They, like they, they weren't being necessarily totally responsible and maybe they had written it 
down on a piece of paper or something. You know what I mean? The one, actually, the one story that, that uh, Agent Ether had alluded to earlier was about an, an IT worker from, from uh, he was a Welsh IT worker. And uh, this guy lost 7,500 Bitcoins. Like, holy what? crap, dude. <laughs> Seven five holy zero crap. zero. That, that's, that, that's a lot. <laughs> I don't know if I did the, I don't think I did the Welsh accent right there. But anyways, yeah, fuck me. But anyways, uh, so um, this guy's name was uh, James uh, Howells, I think, was, was, was what, I don't know how to pronounce his name to be exact, to be quite honest, but uh, anyways, um, the guy started mining Bitcoin somewhere around 2009, and um, from what the story goes, in the summer of 2013, he he had uh, basically like the computer that he had that he was using uh, to mine it was you know it was you know out of date and stuff, and he wanted to get something new, and so uh, he kept the hard drive, but he got rid of the rest of the computer, and he he uh, you know had kept it in his office and such, and um, so so long story short, basically what what happened was the guy accidentally threw it away. Like no. he was, he was cleaning out his office and, and, and yeah. And, and he was, he was basically just tidying stuff up, you know, and, um, he accidentally mi- misplaced, well, not misplaced it, misidentified it. Um, I think his, his quote was, uh, it was a case of mistaken identity, <laughs> which <laughs> sucks. He said, he said he threw it out into a bag and like, he remembers doing it, you know, but he doesn't remember like exp- the exact date or what have you. But like, oh, how much, dude, that must suck so bad. Cause like, I, I, I wouldn't, it sounds like the guy from the little bit that I, I learned about him, he, the guy is not a dumb guy and he, he can definitely earn his own keep, you know, and he, I, I doubt that he's poor, but when you lose 7,500 Bitcoin, holy crap, man. Like, I don't know about you, but that might be enough for me to consider just like saying fuck it and like you know what <laughs> like you you hear these stories about people like in the great depression you know when the market fell out and stuff and the like yeah they just jumped off of buildings and stuff like because of how much they had lost like i'm not saying i would do that i i don't think i would but the thought might come up i don't know like <laughs> you know <laughs> like but like oh man that must suck so much for him the current value of that amount of bitcoin uh-huh. by the way is just over 300 million <laughs> <laughs> Holy mother of God. Yeah, no. I've seen a couple different quotes. Well, it, it really depends on like how much Bitcoin is worth, when, you know, right. right at the moment. But yeah, holy crap, man. Like that's just, that's a life-changing amount of money right there. You oh, know? yeah. And, and uh, so so this guy, ha- ha- he has been um, like like trying to uh, contact like the landfill that he, he knows it's in or believes it's in. And um, he, he's been trying to uh, see if he can he can uh, you know go there and try to retrieve it. Uh, and from what I understood, like he hasn't been able to do it yet. And um, like the landfill itself said that like no, we we can't do that much uh, excavation of a lot of these areas because it would make a, a a huge environmental impact on the surrounding area as well. Like they don't want to you know like like mess with with uh, the rubbish like that. You know I guess, but I don't, I don't understand all that, but. He's he's been trying to get like permission from local like council members and stuff like to to be able to do this, and I don't blame him. <laughs> you know, like yeah, I would I would do I would try to do everything I could. You know, but yeah, there there's a I mean there's there's a ton of there's a ton of stories, and like I'm not gonna get super into the weeds with this or anything like that because like so many of the stories are so very similar, 
I mean, it, a lot of it has a lot to do with people just plain losing their passwords and stuff, you know? It's just like an email account. If you lose your password, but the difference is, is with a Bitcoin address, you can't reset the password. If you lose the password, it's gone forever. And yeah. The the Bitcoin yeah. the Bitcoin are not stored on that hard drive. They're stored on the network, but you can't access mm-hmm. them without the password, and the password is on the hard drive. So if he doesn't remember mm-hmm. the password, they're gone. If he woke up tomorrow and somehow remembered his password, he would no longer need that hard drive. But the problem yeah. is, is that the the password or the private key is usually a randomly generated. Um, the the smallest one I've seen is twelve. It's usually a twenty four word passphrase. So we're talking about a twenty four word long password. Not that easy to remember, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Now, is is yeah. there a penalty if you're, let's say, a hacker and you're trying to hack a wallet and you're trying to guess the password? No, you're welcome to try. That's called brute force hacking. And that's where you just try all the possible combinations until you get it. But there's no penalty. Like you don't have to wait a certain amount of time to try again. Nope. But the way the math hmm. works out is even with the most powerful computers in the world, it would still take you thousands of years to guess the password for any particular public key. Because the the way the, you know, the cryptography and the math and stuff works out with a 24 word, there's just, there's, there's too many possible combinations. Well, of course. It'll never happen. Of course. Yeah. I was just thinking about the group. Were you going to talk about that agent ETA, the group that um, wants to retrieve Bitcoin wallets? Well, from what I understand, there's a lot of uh, companies out there nowadays that actually specialize in that, like, like trying to help people like, you know, um, right. Yeah, find their passwords and, and stuff like that, you know. Like, uh, I, I don't know a ton about that, but I did read about that. But, like, uh, one of the, actually, one of the things I thought was kind of funny, like, uh, it was like I, I came across this, uh, I, it's a tweet from Elon Musk that actually, like, like he, he actually, like, uh, I, guess, I, I guess a friend of his, like, sent him, I, I'll just read the tweet. Um, it says, a friend sent me part of a BTC a few years ago. But I don't know where it is. So like even Elon Musk himself has lost Bitcoin, mm-hmm. like because he just like he lost track of it. I guess you'd say. I don't know. Like it didn't explain much. But there's been a lot of people like there's a, there's been a lot of uh, cryptocurrency that was lost just because people died and didn't like like supply anybody else with the information that they would need to get a hold of this again. You know. I, I think Elon's okay though. I yeah, think he'll, he'll, I think he'll live without that partial Bitcoin. He'll be oh, fine. yeah, no, I'm sure. Yeah, it seems like he's doing pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like, even like, like, I thought that was just a kind of funny little side note. You know what I mean? Like, even he himself has uh, had, you know, um, misplaced cryptocurrency, you know? Hey, let me take this opportunity. Let me take this opportunity to thank Yak and uh, is Ambugatan. I don't know how to pronounce that name, but you guys have been here for a while. What's You've been up? staying the test of time, and I appreciate you guys. What's up, Yak and Ambugatan? Welcome to the show. We just yeah. want we yeah. just want to say thank you for being here. Yeah, the live show. There were more people earlier, but either I bored them to death with my technical <laughs> stuff, or it's late because we're in Cal- <laughs> we're in California and it's almost ten o'clock right now. So that well, means are. that people on the East Coast it's like what, like one in the morning, pretty much for them. So it's kind of yeah. hard for them to catch us live, unfortunately. But ah, what are you going to well, do? There's a time difference. I'm in Arizona and uh, it's 1050 for me right now. Yeah. So, I mean, it, yeah, it is getting Which late. Which I don't, I still don't quite understand that time change there. I know there's a reason, supposedly, but. Daylight savings time is stupid and they just, they should just knock it off already, you know? <laughs> please, please yeah. oh. stop it with the daylight saving. It's horrible. <laughs> it's just the worst. 
I have my little my little protest against daylight savings time is I don't change the clock in my car. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't either. Yeah, <laughs> I'm completely powerless against it, but I refuse to change that clock because it's daylight savings time is completely stupid. It's you know pointless. It causes harm to people. There's more accidents when the clocks are switched over because everybody's tired. It's bad. It's not good in any way. We should stop doing it already. But hey, we should do a whole episode on that. But that's another topic for another time. I was going to mention that. We could yeah. probably do an episode <laughs> yeah. on that. Yeah. But, all right. So I promise something a little more nefarious. So in 2017, it was discovered that there was a back door in Bitmain's Bitcoin mining hardware. Bitmain is a Chinese company that at the time made the vast majority of Bitcoin mining hardware. They were pretty much the only game in town. Most of the network was run on their machines. The market share has dropped drastically since then, mostly due to a really bad idea called Bitcoin Cash, but that's another topic that I'll you know maybe talk a little bit about here. But at the time, they the reason they were able to corner the market is because they had... Uh, you know, like deals with people and they had, um, you know, manufacturing stuff, they could produce the same thing for a fraction of what other people could produce it. So you could buy something from somebody else, but it cost a lot more. So everybody just bought their stuff from them. Basically, it takes computing power to run the network, right? It used to be in the early stages, people would just use any old computer they had lying around to run the network. But over time, people started developing hardware that was a computer, but all the computer could do would be to solve the network problem. So it, it could just do computing power for the network. You couldn't write documents on it. You couldn't run Windows. That was designed specifically for running the network. So one, one machine from Bitmain would be worth the computing power of like thousands of laptops. So it became a thing where if you wanted to contribute power to the network, you had to buy a machine specifically designed to do that. You were no longer able to use a laptop or something like that that you had just sitting around. It became impractical at some point because it just, the machines dedicated to it became too powerful to where, you know, you would be a drop in an ocean at some point, you know? So anyways, um, Bitmain back in the day, they were pretty much the only game in town. If you wanted to buy hardware for Bitcoin mining, you bought it from them. They, they had a virtual monopoly on the, on the whole thing. In 2017, somebody discovered an exploit dubbed Antbleed. And this was introduced by Bitmain in a firmware update to their miners. It, which is kind of strange in and of itself, because do you think the biggest nerds on the planet you know, playing with their magic internet not money are going to, you know, not notice something like that, but I don't know, whatever. The firmware checked in with the central server randomly every one to 11 minutes and transmitted the hardware serial number, Mac address, and IP address of the miner. Bitmain could check these numbers against their sales and they could find out specifically who the owners of each mining rig was. They could identify the owners of these rigs completely defeating any any sort of idea of you know being anonymous at all I, there's the word i'm looking for is anonymity i think anon anonymity is that what i'm trying to say whatever but what's even worse is that this back door allowed bitmain to remotely shut off the mining hardware 
And at this time, the number I could find was something like 70% of all the mining power was Bitmain hardware. So they could use, they could combine this backdoor with their sales logs to target specific machines or customers, right? You're like, well, why would they want to do that? They would basically be ruining their own business, right? It doesn't make any sense. Um, well, th- this exploit was even worse though, because of the way it worked. It also allowed for man in the middle attacks and DNS hijacking, whatever those are. We won't go into them now because it, you know, a little complicated, but it, it's basically like allows- man, man in the middle. Does that refer to like a human sandwich or something? <laughs> sure. Why not? No, no. Talking about- so man in the middle would be when let's say if you go to log into your bank, but a hacker spoofs the web page to look like your bank's web page. And ah. you you enter your data into somebody else's. That that's sort of an example of like a man. There's different versions, but that's essentially what that would be. But um, th- this particular exploit also allowed for those sorts of things. But you think why would they put this in the hardware? Because it would basically be self defeating, right? It, nobody would buy their hardware anymore once it was discovered. Well, but there, there are some extenuating circumstances, right? So the, the exploit was probably from a firmware update on July 11th, 2016. Now it wasn't discovered until 2017. So the reason why this would be useful or why this would be so bad for them to put in there would be that, uh, one of the reasons is that, uh, Bitmain actually ran or runs probably still does a Bitcoin mining pool. Now the idea behind a Bitcoin mining pool is that any individual, like let's say I want to mine Bitcoin at home, I can buy one machine, but that one machine is probably never going to get the Bitcoin mining reward. One of the strange things about Bitcoin is every block, all, all the block, like right now it's about six Bitcoins. Those Bitcoins are not divided amongst all the people providing computing power. Instead, one you know, one individual or one machine will earn those Bitcoins. They go, it's all or nothing. So if you only have one or two machines running, the chances of you ever getting that reward are pretty close to zero. It's like playing the lottery. So instead, if you can only afford to buy one or two machines, you'll donate that to a mining pool where everybody pools their computing power and collectively that pool if they get the reward, we'll divide it amongst all the people participating in the pool. Well, Bitmain has a mining pool. And if they were hypothetically able to shut off everybody's computing power outside of that pool, then they would get all of the rewards for mining Bitcoin. And what's even worse is without getting into too much detail, if some entity or power was able to control all the computing power of the network, then they would, by definition, run the network and they could basically do things like create Bitcoin out of thin air and compromise the network. So, you know, I don't want to get into like the technical details of why that's possible, but basically, if you have a decentralized network, but all of a sudden one entity is controlling all the computing power on that, on that network, it's no longer decentralized. It becomes centralized at that point. So this backdoor allowed Bitmain to centralize the decentralized network. Again, why would they want to do that? If they were able to do that, even if they had their own mining pool, that would still kind of like ruin Bitcoin, right? It would crash the price and they would become worth nothing. 
But some people think it was done by the Chinese government because nobody in their right mind, no hardware manufacturer in their right mind would put such a thing into their hardware, into their firmware. But there's also another reason why Bitmain might want it, might have wanted to do this. And this is where we get into the more nefarious part. So if they had wanted to kill Bitcoin and introduce their own currency, it would make sense to put this exploit into the hardware. But wait, Bitmain totally did that when they backed a, a currency called Bitcoin Cash, which was part of a hard fork from Bitcoin in June of 2017. Now, a hard fork is basically when part of the network says, now nah, we're not going to do it this way, we're going to do it a different way, and they take the network in a different direction. You now have two separate parts of the network disagreeing on which transactions are real, and that's a hard fork. So Bitmain did this with Bitcoin Cash. I mean, they did it on the down low, and this is, again, this is another topic for like a whole other episode with the details of this. And um, some people might say, ah, they didn't really do it. They basically bet their company on Bitcoin Cash, which they wanted to control as their own currency. And this would be the perfect way to do it, would be to put this backdoor in, use this backdoor to crash Bitcoin, to basically compromise the network and destroy Bitcoin at the very at the right moment when they did the hard fork making Bitcoin Cash the de facto digital currency of the world, destroying Bitcoin in the process, right? But unfortunately for them, somebody discovered the back door and was able to defeat it. So all you needed to do was go into forward slash ETC forward slash hosts and include the line 139.59.36.141 auth.minerlink.com. You added that. And it overcomes this vulnerability, supposedly. I don't know what any of that means, but that's what I found online. So it was super simple to fix the problem. So the problem was fixed, and therefore they were not able to destroy Bitcoin with this back door. Some people give them the benefit of the doubt and say, ah, it was just a mistake, some spare code or whatever. But it's hard for me to believe that you would put such a back door into your hardware without some sort of nefarious intention of using it in the future, whether it was the Chinese government or Bitmain or both, who knows, but there was definitely some nasty stuff going on there, right? Because they were defeated with their back door, they had to think of another way of trying to make people go from Bitcoin to Bitcoin cash. They did this with flooding the Bitcoin network with transactions to slow it down. At the time, I think the, the block size was like two megabytes. Anything over that would overflow into the next block. So what somebody, nobody knew who it was at first, but somebody eventually figured out that it was Bitmain. What you could do is put a ton of tiny little transactions to clog up the network. So if you put in a transaction that should take 10 minutes, instead it might take 10 days because the network gets really backed up. Now, since then, there have been all sorts of improvements to the network, and this is not really a problem anymore. But at the time, Bitmain was actually able to spend money to clog up the network and slow it down. And nobody's ever come out and said, this is why we did it or whatever. But basically, it was because they wanted to promote their currency, which was Bitcoin Cash, at the cost of Bitcoin. They wanted people to say, well, Bitcoin is garbage. Look at the network. It doesn't work. It's all clogged up we better start using Bitcoin Cash. But of course, 
it didn't work. <laughs> and as a result of Bitcoin basically putting all their money into Bitcoin Cash or Bitmain, put all their they put all their eggs into Bitcoin Cash. They basically lost all their market share and the the CEO was kicked out and now instead of having 70% of the market share, they have like less than 1% or something. I don't know the exact number. I didn't really look it up, but um, so they, it seems to me like they were trying to make a big move, but they seriously failed. Yeah, exactly. They seriously, seriously failed. Because once they found out about this backdoor, and, you know, we're not talking about a community of casual people. We're talking about a community of super nerds who are really paying attention to what's going on. Everybody's like, whoa, whoa, fuck these guys. You know, like, let's get mm-hmm. a different hardware manufacturer who's not going to do all the shenanigans. So they uh-huh. pretty much um, shot themselves in the foot or, you know, however you want to say it. I'm doing like a short, short version of this. And that none of this is really proven. This is all just more or less my opinion based on what I've read. If you want to research this stuff yourself, good luck, because it is a very deep rabbit hole, a very long and winding and convoluted road. Uh, that's kind of all the, all the stuff. There's, there's like so much more we could do, but we're running like really, really long and we've only really scratched the surface. I always say this a lot on the show, but it's true. Yeah. So I guess, I don't know. That's pretty much, pretty much all I had for this time. Anybody else have any closing thoughts or anything? I, I really would, but, uh, we're on like what an hour and a half. Yeah. Oh no. Yeah. We're actually at, we're going to, I'm going to cut some of this obviously, but we're at one hour and 55 minutes right now. My goodness. (laughs) But I'm probably going to cut at least half an hour of that. But I mean, yeah, we're going really long, but this is just one of those topics where this is, I wanted to do this one for a long time now, but it's, I mean, there's just so much to it that even just one episode is not a lot, you know, not enough time to talk about everything. And there's tons of controversies, conspiracies, and all that kind of stuff that I haven't even gotten to, but I felt like I had to kind of explain what it was. So people had some kind of context to know what Bitcoin is and, you know, before we got into all of the, you know, the controversies and stuff. But yeah, all right. Well, anything else, ETA? No. Um, yeah. No, I mean, I, we've already covered everything and plus by far, uh, as far as what I know about this shit. <laughs> I'm not going to add, I'm not going to add anything that is going to be, you know, contributing to the conversation at this point. I can tell you that much. All right. Well, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you could really help us out by suggesting the show to your friends and leaving us a good review wherever you listen to podcasts. Keep it strange.